Welcome to The Mentor List. To turn you into the best version of you that's around. To seek support and you need to allow yourself to be supported. Really have a point of difference. What is precious, what's really important and then putting some boundaries there. The Mentor List specialises in interviews with top business minds. Gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List. Welcome to our CEO podcast series. Today's theme is culture. Today we have James Pazino joining us, who is an amazing has an amazing career highlight readout, which I'll just run you through. So James is a strategic leader with an impressive track record of taking local Australian businesses through significant growth and expansion into international markets. During his tenure as the managing director and CEO of Intersect Pivot. James led the largest Australian corporate growth story on record. Over his 14-year tenure, first as CFO and then as CEO, the company increased in size six-fold to an enterprise value of $8 billion. And James hasn't slowed down there. He's currently the Chairman of Manufacturing Australia, Chairman of Osteon Medical, a leading digital health business, non-exec director of Australian Pipeline Limited, non-exec director of Rabobank, non-exec director of Tassel Group Limited, vice-chancellor and fellows and adjunct professor at La Trobe University. So James passionately believes in diversity and is a member of the Melbourne Male Champions of Change Group. So one of the insights that James mentions in our conversation today around culture is the question is how do you beat the market as your returns will always come back to your cost of capital? And he says that he's passionate about diversity and having a distinctive culture and sees the only competitive advantage in business is actually that culture. So we hope you enjoy today's conversation with James Fazzino. James Fazzino, welcome to The Mentor List. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Dave, this afternoon. Well, it's, it's great to be able to catch you in these, sort of, these times where we're both sort of working remotely and um, we can still, the technology enables us to still come together. So, yeah, I, thanks for taking the time. So the first question is really around sort of career and um, interested to hear how you advanced into the role of CEO. Well, Dave, I was actually made CEO really relatively early. So I, was, I, I became CEO of Insitech Pivot at 42 and, you know, when I look at a lot of CEOs, it tends to be closer to your 50s. And a lot of that was because the way I managed my career and also where I worked. So I had most of my career in a business called ICI, which now most people know as Orica. Uh, it was a business where at the time you had six major divisions, most of which actually now are separately listed companies. And they had 52 different businesses. And because of that, there was a huge opportunity as someone who, out of university to be able to work in a range of businesses and get a range of skills across the business. I'm, I'm a qualified accountant, came in there as, you know, in your traditional financial reporting role. But I actually had a new role on average about every 18 months for, for, for 12 years. and. What I had in my career was an annual resume test. So I used to, at the end of the year, sit down and say, can I describe two things that I've done this year where if I was pitching to an employer, 
they would absolutely be two compelling things for your resume. And if the answer was yes, I knew I could stay in the job. If the answer was no, I looked to actively move. And because of that, what I was able to do was build a bunch of competencies and experiences and be able to build my career that way. And one of the things I'd recommend is not to try to climb a ladder because if you do that, it's likely that a company will be either restructured or taken over before you actually get to climb up that ladder. So a real focus on competencies and experiences. And that allowed me, as I said, to rake up a bunch of experiences all the way from technical accounting and you know, being a finance guy was always a great skill because obviously the language of business is finance, right? And if you look at the ASX 200, I think over 50% of the CEOs have a finance background. So that speaks to something. But it was then leveraged into places like manufacturing, um, into uh, marketing and sales, supporting marketing and sales, into investor relations. I, I even actually took a stint in treasury and traded foreign exchange for a while, which of course taught me a lot about risk. Yeah, as you do. It was, it was back in one of those times where uh, you're encouraged to have a punt. So we'd come in, clear, clear the company's cash flow, and then we're told uh, you could have a punt on the Aussie or the yen or something else, and we'd go out to lunch, right? So the good old days in, in, the, in the late 90s. So the big break for me in uh, ICI, which by, then, by that time had been called Orica, was they owned a fertiliser business called Insitech, and uh, that was merged with another fertiliser business called Pivot to form Insitech Pivot. And you can see we're really creative in terms of the name. And I was sent down there as a CFO. And initially, Orica owned 70% of that business and subsequently sold down. So it was fantastic because I became CFO of a listed company really early in my career. I had that initial period where it was 70% owned by Orica, so I could actually test. And I had my mentors back at Orica to support me there, subsequent sell down. And what actually happens uh, if you're a CFO is if your experience is broad enough, CFOs tend to grow into COOs. And whilst I didn't have that exact title, by the, you know, by the, by the time I'd advanced to just before I was appointed CEO, I'd been effectively running the business for three or four years. Fortunate at that time that I was finance director on the board. So the board saw me as the person who ran the business and, and really fortunate that I had a fantastic CEO, a guy by the name of Julian Siegel, who uh, last role was running uh, Caltex. And, and Julian was someone who uh, was absolutely prepared to delegate. And, you know, he, he took the role of chief strategist, I guess, and I was allowed to run the business. So fast forwarding, I became CFO in 2003 and was appointed um, CEO in 2008. We had just done a $4 billion acquisition of a business called Dino Nabal. So that took Intertech from a fertilizer business to a global explosives business. And of course, having written a $4 billion check, we went into the financial crisis. Julian took the opportunity at Caltex. And of course, that really opened up the opportunity to become CEO. And in some respects, you, all, you should absolutely always recognise that being appointed is also time specific. 
And of course, in the middle of a financial crisis where you'd just written out a $4 billion check, actually, to per- and, and uh, you had confidence in the CFO because I'd been running a business, frankly, as a board, who else are you going to appoint? Um, and I was appointed um, CEO. Um, so I think you should always recognise that. Um, yes, you can build a bunch of competencies and experience, but there is an element of right person at right time also, particularly for an internal appointee. And um, the other key ingredient was I had two directors around uh, the table, the chairman and another director, who kind of took me under their wing. And uh, when I was appointed that CEO, as I said, relatively early in my career, I had the great benefit of a really great mentor in the chairman and actually another director who was able to, at times, pull me aside and say, hey, I'd, I'd do this slightly differently. So, you know, having been appointed, that really set me up for success as CEO. Yeah, great, Dan. And so that's sort of how you, you've landed into the role. So I think you said back in 2008. And so 14 years as CEO of Intertech Pivot, um, and I sort of made the connection when you were talking about fertiliser business and explosive business and how they could obviously go together. But around, so, so how did you sort of, there's been a huge period of growth, you know, internationally, um, I imagine in yourself as well, and you've sort of alluded to having various mentors and directors who have supported you in that. But how did you sort of, how did you stay, how did you have that sort of growth uh, coming into the role uh, relatively young at uh, 42 and that sustained period of 14 years you, you mentioned some of the luck around right to right time and um, you know right skills what do you think sort of was the thing that sort of put you in good stead over those years or was it different different things over the years well, well you're absolutely right it was a period of explosive growth I mean if you looked at the value of the two businesses when they were put together it was you know around a billion and we grew the business to eight billion. This is in terms of enterprise value over a relatively short period of time. I think there was a couple of things. Number one, we were very strategically driven and absolutely disciplined in what we chose to do and what we didn't choose to do. Secondly, we had a really good sense for being able to see value that others didn't. Um, I, I can remember um, a company maker at Insitech Pivot was when we bought a business from BHP called Southern Cross Fertilisers, which was a, a big fertiliser plant in northern Australia that had been delivered by Western Mining and, of course, BHP inherited as part of the Western Mining acquisition and clearly it didn't fit. That was what was regarded as a troubled plant. Troubled plant. It was regarded as a plant that could never work, you could never make money, and we bought it for... 160 million. Having worked out, actually, a lot of the commissioning issues had been fixed. And, you know, we paid for it in a month. Now, which was, in some respects, fortuitous because global fertiliser prices boomed. But but actually, um, in a lot of respect, it was a result which we set ourselves up for because we saw value where others didn't. So, secondly, seeing values where uh, value where others didn't. And thirdly, being absolutely disciplined in viewing what's the value of the business that you've got and understanding um, how it's valued. And, of course, that was the opportunity with the Dino acquisition. We're a fertiliser business only. As I said, fertiliser businesses were at an all-time high. The market had said 
actually it's a new normal. We knew it wasn't a new normal and we use that currency to um, buy the explosives business. If you look today, Intertech pivots mainly explosives actually. Um, and that was that created a huge amount of shareholder value. And then once again, the right place at right time in terms of strategy. And the other thing was we were really disciplined about execution and absolutely disciplined in, in ensuring that you um, got the value out of what you bought before you moved on to the next leg of growth. So, James, um, you mentioned sort of you know, having or planning for the value increase and being very disciplined around what you did and didn't do. It sounds like you've obviously assumed that strategic role that the prior CEO sort of stepped into. I mean, is it, how are you, like, is it a case of what gets measured gets resolved? Are you like, are you, is this part of your cadence around what's the value of the business against what the plans were? Like, how did you actually, so someone's looking to replicate as something which I'm sure there's many who would like to have their business grow from one to eight billion. Yeah. Was the actual uh, cadence or um, process around managing that and planning that growth? Yeah, it might be useful to just talk about, you know, my approach to strategy. Uh, I mean, the first question you've got to ask is, what are you creating the strategy for? And, you know, ultimately, it's the strategy to deliver on your strategic intent. And actually, if you look at most companies, it's top quartile TSR. So actually, the strategy is designed to deliver that. And there's a risk profile associated with that, uh, obviously, which you talk to the board. And, And then the question that you've got to ask is, how do you beat the market? Because markets are fundamentally efficient. And what you know is that returns will always go back to your cost of capital. And and in fact, the reason why a lot of companies don't succeed is there's a fair bit of the market that invests below their cost of capital. So once again, being disciplined, and you can see a lot of this is financially based. And that goes back to the advantage of being a... um, a CFO before CEO. And, and, and for me, I've always thought about it, well, how do you generate above cost of capital returns? Firstly, there's two external factors. And, um, you know, I'm a real fan of the way McKinsey thinks about strategy. And what McKinsey tells us is your, your industry really matters. Um, and they give the example of if you invest in airlines, you tend to destroy value. In fact, if you add up all the returns airlines have made since the Wright brothers, it's negative. And as an alternative, if you invest in pharmaceuticals, you tend to earn above cost of capital returns. So industry really matters. And then the second thing is, I think you've got to invest against discontinuities in the global economy that create that window that allows you to earn above cost of capital return. So if you went back to Insitec, what are the two discontinuities we invested against? Firstly, it was the mining boom in Australia. And, you know, there was a, a point in time where the constraint on mining was tyres first and explosives second. So, you know, the customers would pay you a premium for those. And then moving on in terms of the, in terms of the US business, it was the shale boom in the US. And uh, we spent a billion under my leadership building an ammonia plant that leveraged that. So first, industry matters. Second, invest against its discontinuities. And that's the external environment. Why can you make money? And you've got to match that with your internal question, which is why us? And, of course, that's all about leveraging a distinctive core competency in the business. And in InsightTech's case, uh, we were one of the world's best manufacturers of nitrogen chemistry. And 
com, um, combining those two allowed us to create value. And having decided on what the strategy is, strategy is about choices. You need to be absolutely disciplined. You've made your choice. You don't go off and do anything else. By definition, the choice to do one thing is a choice to do something else. And having the discipline to say, no, strategically, we're going to follow this path. And even if shiny new balls show up, we're not going to go and chase those. That's, that, that, that's the key. And I think that's the key to be strategically driven. And then, of course, it all comes down to execution. Right? So just on that, and you sort of touched on, you know, asking the internal question, should it be us? And I know you're, you're sort of one of the Melbourne male champions of change and you've sort of pi- you've pioneered sort of changes around diversity and you're passionate around championing those types of changes within sort of Intertech Pivot, but more broadly as well. I mean, how have you sort of come to the, and something that's probably not as easy to measure and um, I get the CFO to CEO and I can hear that coming through. So, so one of the other things you're known for in, in your tenure at Intertech is around this culture transformation. Did you want to talk about maybe your approach to coach culture or, or your experience there? In terms of why us, um, having a distinctive culture is the only competitive advantage in business. And the reason why culture is such a competitive advantage and an enduring competitive advantage is you can't copy it, right? Because it's company specific. And, you know, let me just tell a a brief story about Dino. So we we bought Dino in the middle, as I said, in the middle of a financial crisis. Uh, Dino was a business that had been put together by private equity. So it was in reality about 14 or 15 different businesses, never consolidated. And, of course, the challenge was we were an Australian company going global. How do you glue all that together? And as CEO, I I said, actually, the way you do that is through culture, having a shared mindset and behaviours, having um, a shared way of the way we do work around here. And initially, actually, I started my cultural discussion on safety, right? Because if you're going to – if you produce stuff that goes bang, um, it's the thing in the business where everyone values and actually it's something where you're never seen to have a loaded conversation as a CEO. Now the beauty about safety is not only you can have that conversation, but actually to get safety right, you've got to get everything right in terms of people's focus, in terms of your systems, in terms of the way you show up, in in terms of the way you work. And so on culture, we started with safety. And, of course, the discussion was not only how do we have a safe day, but how do we improve safety. We use that as the catalyst for driving continuous improvement. We ended up in, you know, with a company where 5,500 people would come to work every day and ask themselves two identical questions. Uh, the first one was how do I have a safe day? And the second one was how do I improve the business? And if you actually think about the power of large numbers, and uh, the power of leveraging your full workforce, having 5,500 people improve the business is far better than what you see in a lot of businesses, which is you know, a, a group of 10 or 50 in a head office who do improvement to the business, not buy it. And of course, also, that's the key to sustainability because improvements are only sustainable if improvements done by you, not to you. And through culture, uh, when I was CEO, we liberated about 
$500 million worth of cash over, it was around about four years. And actually, other than me and the management team going around the world talking about our values, it actually cost us nothing, right? And, um, you know, that's one of the things you've got to realise as, 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 a, as a CEO, that's, that's your role. Your role is to engage up um, your business based on a bunch of uh, values and then your role is to stand back and watch it happen right and uh, that's where you really want to get to so that was key to the execution and you know interestingly when I um, finished as CEO I did a bit of what I internally what we call the Thelma and Louise tour now we didn't actually crash, crash the car across the cliff but interestingly the thing that I found, and I went out and I, I toured about, gee, around about 100 sites globally because I spent a lot of time on, on the sites as CEO. I always found that was pretty cool. The thing that people came up to me and said that they wanted to keep and the thing they thanked me about was, number one, safety, because, you know, some of them said actually, you know, we're, we're actually alive today because of those reforms. Um, and, you know, you, you better believe it, you know, if you're in explosives, as I said. That's true, but the thing they also said they wanted to keep was the continuous improvement, the ability to improve the business. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. You know, we, you know, over that time, we'd take the company global. We'd spent a you know a billion dollars in the US on a major project, a billion dollars in Australia on a major project. But the thing that the employees really valued was the cultural bit, and uh, that was a real, you know, that was a real lesson for me. Yeah, great. And so it sounds, you sort of mentioned creating this sustainable business through through culture, and you mentioned the CV test before, and sort of moving on from um, Instech Pivot, and now you're sort of moving into non-exec roles. How have you found that transition? And was that I had to ask you was that a result of you know doing the CV test after the 14 years and saying, oh, I've got to go, I've got to move on, or how how have you found that? Well, it actually was. I mean, you know. Um in terms of being a CEO, I always said them. I got some really good advice by, from a, a guy by the name of Malcolm Broomhead, he's, who uh, was CEO of North, CEO of um, Orica, and he now sits on a bunch of boards around town. Uh, actually chairs Orica, sits on BHP board. And he said to me, James, look, you want to continuously look at the impact that you're having on the organisation and realise there's a point at which actually the organisation would be better without you rather than with you. And I, and I can remember there were a couple of problems in the business. And there's always problems in the business where, where you just can't solve them. And I found myself saying about the third time around, well, why don't you just go and do this? And I thought, actually, maybe the reason why we can't solve the problem is because of me. <laughs> maybe I'm stopping the business from being able to move on. And, you know, I actually realised... You know, I remember I was CEO for eight years. That, that was the time to move on. Um, and, you know, um, with that, plus also the fact that uh, I'd, I was spending 60% of my time offshore, combination of those two uh, made me realise I, I wanted to resign, which I did. I, you know, stepped down. And then I did exactly the same resume test. And um, it would have been really easy to just go and do another CEO job. But I didn't feel as if I had any unfinished business. You know, there was there's really nothing as a CEO that I wanted I wanted to do. So it failed the resume test. And um, today I 
sit on a couple of boards as um, a non-executive director, really chose the boards really carefully. For me, my charter in life now is to make a, try to make a real difference to Australia. And uh, one of the boards I sit on is a, a major provider of energy infrastructure and a lot of what Australia does is energy related. That's our competitive advantage. There is another board where I wanted to learn banking. So I've joined a uh, board of a bank. Um, the bank's actually Rabo Bank. The reason I chose Rabo is I really love the fact they're a co-op and that means it operates quite differently. It's something I learned from Pivot uh, because Pivot prior to merger was a co-op. And I also sit on the board of a uh, business called Tassel, which uh, is a salmon and prawn farmer, but actually they're an ag tech company and uh, really interested in the tech. And, and once again, where I've gravitated to is, if you like, the two things that Australia does really well, which is mining stroke resources and um, farming. And then the other boards I sit on, I chair a digital health business called Ostium Medical. Um, and that is sensational, a tiny business. But it's truly taught me truly what digital means and what it doesn't. So that's a business that's revolutionising dental implants, um, a business we're taking global. And then um, I also do a couple of things where I'm trying to make a difference for Australia. And uh, one of those you mentioned, which was male champions of change, I convene a couple of groups. I absolutely believe that Australia's growth edge, particularly coming out of COVID, is diversity. So um, have a privilege to work with 20 litres in Melbourne on one and eight litres in actually uh, heavy manufacturing in, in another group I convene. And then the other thing I do is still chair an organisation called Manufacturing Australia, which is a, um, well, at heart, it's a lobby group. And I do that because I really care about manufacturing. So the really nice thing is I've got a spread of stuff. It's really quite interesting. None of, none of it's full time. And I've got to say, there's something nice about standing up after a board meeting and going home. And, you know, I would also have to admit, I, I probably prefer the strategic bits of the board rather, rather than the governance. Governance is really important, but uh, it can, can get a little dry, especially uh, in terms of the bank. How do you go with that, James? Because, I mean, we're sort of seeing boards uh, moving, well, just generally speaking, boards are more moving into that governance space and sort of the lit litigious uh, impacts of being on a board can turn some individuals away. I mean, how do you go at sort of balancing, obviously the governance needs to be done and it's part of the role. H how do you sort of find that and balance that sort of with, within your portfolio of, of, yeah. of board? Well, well, for me, um, I mean, governance is vital, obviously. It's your ticket to play and a lot of it's your social licence to operate. So you've got to do it and do it well. But you've actually got to do it in a way that creates value and supports the business strategy. If you do just governance purely for governance and it's not connected to what the business fundamentally does, I think, I think you're missing uh, the whole point um, about it. In fact, actually, whilst, as an aside, the Banking Royal Commission was really useful, it, it, it actually described culture as something that's related to governance. Well, it is, but culture's also, as we've chatted, a, a key driver of shareholder value so i think there are always two heads of one coin and 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 you need to 
be able to create value through the way the organisation's governed. governed. The, and I guess the role I play is to always say, well, in terms of what we're doing with governance, how does it support, how does it support that strategy? And in some respects, uh, the advantage I've got, of course, is I'm an ex-CEO, so can absolutely stand in the shoes of uh, the CEO. And, you know, as a CEO, you've got to do everything, right? And you can't afford to have one bit of your agenda not contributing to the whole, whole agenda, which is, you know, the approach to governance. Yeah, great. Well, yeah, thanks for sharing that, James. And I can see this sort of even in governance, you're finding a way of connecting that to the value and the value creation of the business. So I can I see that theme flowing through your career and also now in the non-exec. Um, and I, I would imagine it's a real privilege to have a prior CEO on a board for the, for the CEOs you currently support because you've been there and you, you have that compassion and understanding. So, James, I wanted, wanted to thank you for coming on the show today and sharing your, your career. It's hard to distill such a distinguished career, which is still in flight uh, into just that 20 to 30 minutes, but really appreciate you jumping on the call today and sharing with the listeners. Dave, it was a real privilege and hopefully there's a uh, few things the listeners can pick up on there. Yeah, well, I've wrote about eight pages of notes, so I think there's a couple. (laughs) Thanks, James. All good, mate. Thank you for joining us today at The Mentor List. If you'd like to hear more or speak to us about recommending our next interview guest, come on through to mentorlist.com.au. You can also find out more about our suite of mastermind series taking shape in your area, your industry, and your discipline. We look forward to welcoming you to one of our events very soon. Stay tuned for another great show. Thank you for listening to The Mentor List. If you like what you're hearing on The Mentor List, the best way to support the show is to just take a few seconds to leave a rating and or comment over on iTunes. You can also find further information about this show and links to further episodes at mentorlist.com.au. Until next time, this is The Mentor List.